the youth were never more saucy. Yeah. The ancient are scorned, the honorable are condemned, and the magistrate is not dreaded. <laughs> Kids today. Kids today. Welcome once again to Free Associations of the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why it is that we ever thought it was a good idea to allow people to smoke on airplanes. Why did we ever think it was a good idea to allow people in a pressurized metal tube hurtling through space to pull out fire? It's hard to imagine now, right, that that, that, that happened, but it did. In fact, yeah. when I was 10, I traveled with my grandmother to Ireland, and that's what was the impetus for her to stop smoking, was that she was not going to be able to smoke on that overseas flight in 1985. Wow. Um, Whereas in 1985, you could still smoke on a U.S. plane, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. But maybe just I remember going down on to Florida. certain international flights, you couldn't. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but yeah. It's just insane, let alone all the health effects. But I mean, just the idea that you would allow people to have fire in the air. Anyway. I, I remember being on those flights. Yeah, they would say smoking so right on. Yeah, yeah. smoking. As, as if, you as could if keep it made the, any difference. Yeah. No, it didn't at all. Hmm. So I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. I am here with Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Don't, don't we have to talk about the Population Health Exchange? And first, let me introduce our, our co-host. Oh. And Jennifer Ryder from the Department of Epidemiology. Hi. Here at the BU School of Public Health. Chris, do you want to tell us something? No, but you forgot to tell them about the Population Health Exchange, which that you is, usually do. That is because I have nothing to say about the Population Health Exchange website today other than you but should it, go there. Isn't there like a winter festival or something where they're giving away free candy and cigarettes? Uh, Free candy and cigarettes <laughs> does not sound like something that would be on the Population Health Exchange website. <laughs> I totally but misunderstood you, that. You <laughs> might find lifelong learning courses and programs Vaping and products. tools. No. <laughs> no. You might find uh, our Winter Institute, which starts starts on, I forgot the date now, <laughs> January, January 6th. 6th. <laughs> but and it's not ending on January 7th. No, it's It goes not, for a while. It, what is it? It's like a, the it's, it's basically rides. as long as Woodstock, right? People dress as elves. Yeah, people come and they, <laughs> they form a little, uh, they form a little uh, makeshift camp. It's basically Burning Man. Burning right. Man for public health. That's right. That's, right. that's pretty much what it is. Um, or or it's a place where you can do some online courses. Uh, where, where, one what of the two. I'm not really sure. What are we going to set fire to and where? That is a, well, nothing in a plane. I know that. Anyway. Wow. Now onto the show. It's going to be great. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to talk about whether taking hypertension pills at night leads to stronger benefits in terms of said hypertension pills. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we are going to talk about whether hyping scientific research runs the risk of devaluing research. And I'm just going to say right now... It might. Of course it does. So the questions are not simply going to be, does it? Because we does. know it does. <laughs> and then in our amazing and amusing segment, we will get into things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us about the latest forgery in the art world. Oh, yes. Yeah. You got any good ones for us this time? Uh, no. Uh, so segment one. We're going to talk about whether taking hypertension pills at night leads to stronger health benefits. And so this was a study published in the European Heart Journal. And the study was titled Bedtime Hypertension Treatment Improves Cardiovascular Risk Reduction. Now, I need you guys' help on how to pronounce the next part. Verapamil. No. no. 
<laughs> no, the Hygieia. The Hygieia. Hygieia? Is that Hygia. the name? Hygieia chronotherapy trial? Chronotherapy. Well, what's the difference? Chrono, say you chrono, say chrono, chrono. Yeah, what's the difference? Chrono. What's the difference between chrono and chrono? Are we going to go back to uh, <laughs> the the, the uh, angina debate again? And, and so, no, it's more like <laughs> Hermione Granger and what, what, what is that like? You know, ex, <laughs> expectro Petronus. No, my kids are going to be mad at me because I got it all wrong. It's something about fixing eyeglasses or luminos or something, yeah, like, something that. like that. Anyway, know. this was by first author Raymond um, Hermina. No, 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 no. It was Jakey Rowling. Oh, that, that was what it was. Right. Sorry. Of the bioengineering and cro- chronobiology th- laboratories? <laughs> or is it chrono? Chrono. Chrono. Chrono, Atlantic Research Center for Information and Communication Technologies at the University of Vigo in Spain, which I had to look up because I didn't know where Vigo was, but it's over on that uh, part just north of Portugal, <laughs> which looked like a fun place to visit. <laughs> so um, this one did get a lot of press, so let me give you some headlines on this one. Business Standard says blood pressure medication works best when taken at bedtime, colon, study. <laughs> CBS Local says... You might want to change the time of day you take your blood pressure medicine. Thank Hmm. thank you, CBS. New York Times says the best time to take your blood pressure drugs may be at night. Hmm. Uh, USA Today says blood pressure medicines at night may lower heart attack and stroke. And the AARP, which I put in there for those of you, anyone who doesn't know outside of the U.S., does it exist outside the U.S.? American Academy of No, it must not because the American American Association of Retired People, I believe. Association, yeah. Association of Retired People says taking blood pressure meds at night may protect your heart. And I just put that one in there because it was the AARP and their constituency might be interested in this. So, Jen, can you... uh, Walk us through the I wear my hypertension pills at night study. Sure. I will do my best. Okay. So I think it's first important to realize that a normal 24-hour blood pressure pattern involves dipping at nighttime. Is that correct, Chris? I think so. Okay. So uh, you want your blood pressure to be lower in the evening. And several randomized control trials have shown that blood pressure both during sleep and this normal 24-hour blood pressure patterning are improved when hypertensive medications are taken at bedtime rather than when you wake up. And that's thought to be the result of the effect of your circadian rhythms on the activity of these, these medications. So that's important because your blood pressure while you're sleeping seems to be more prognostic in terms of cardiovascular disease risk than your awake blood pressure. Very few studies have evaluated the timing of hypertensive medications on CVD risk. One exception is a study of a little bit more than 2,000 hypertensive patients that showed after 5.6 years, bedtime versus waking hypertensive treatment resulted in a sleep blood pressure, less of the non-dipping sleeping blood blood pressure profile, um, and also a lower incidence of cardiovascular disease events. So these authors were interested in examining a similar research question, but in a primary care setting um, and also a a larger study. So this particular study is a prospective randomized open-label blinded endpoint study, probe study. Um, Probe. Probe. It's called the, as uh, Matt pointed out, the Hygieia 
chronotherapy trial, which is part of a larger Hygia project, which involves a research network of 40 different primary care centers in northern Spain. And these primary care centers instituted ambulatory blood pressure monitoring as routine procedure in order to both diagnose and treat hypertension, evaluate responses to treatment, and also the risk of CBD and other outcomes. So their research question was, does the ingestion of at least one entire daily dose of hypertensive medication at bedtime result in better ambulatory blood pressure control and reduction of CBD risk than ingestion of all of the hypertensive medications a person is taking upon waking. Uh, They considered all of the major classes of hypertensive medications, so those would be angiotensin II receptor blockers, ACE inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, and diuretics. The study included Caucasian men and women who were at least 18 years old or older and had an existing diagnosis of hypertension determined by ambulatory blood pressure monitoring over a 48-hour period. For those interested, the awake systolic mean had to be at least 135, and the awake diastolic had to be at least 85, the asleep systolic had to be at least 120, and the asleep diastolic had to be at least 70. The participants also had to have a prescription of blood pressure lowering treatment. Because this was about taking the medication before bedtime rather than waking up, they required all participants to have daytime activity and nighttime sleep. So individuals who were doing shift work or rotating or uh, night work were excluded. They also included pregnant women, those with a history of alcoholism or narcotic addiction, AIDS, secondary hypertension, CBD intolerance to ambulatory blood pressure monitoring or a general inability to communicate or comply with the the protocol. They had a targeted minimum follow-up of, or sorry, median follow-up of five years with a minimum of one year per participant. So over the period of 2008 to 2018, A total of 19,084 participants met the inclusion criteria, and they were 60 and a half years of age on on average. So the protocol specified that if a person's blood pressure remained uncontrolled based on that ambulatory monitoring at any maximum recommended dose of a particular hypertensive, additional therapy could be added according to standard practice. So there were some changes in medication throughout follow-up. The study was divided into the two arms at a one-to-one ratio, according to when the participants would take their hypertensive treatment. Uh, There were 9,552 participants in the arm where at least one medication was going to be taken at bedtime, and the remaining 9,532 participants took all their medications when they woke up. It's a lot. It's a big, yeah, it's a big study, right? Big study. At each clinical visit, which happened at least yearly, but more so, more often for participants who had uncontrolled hypertension or if there was evidence of um, CBD risk factors like chronic kidney disease or diabetes, a number of different evaluations were taken. So first of all, all participants at those clinical visits had to complete the Marisky Green test. Yes. Yes. Uh, Which is a four-item scale used to determine medication compliance. I feel like Marisky Green was in The Godfather. Hmm, No. No? Didn't he own one of the casinos in Vegas that they had to go take over in The Godfather Part 2? 
Mo Green. No, never mind. Go on. Moving on. Moving on. At the clinical visits there, any adverse events were also registered. They conducted uh, resting office blood pressure monitoring on each participant. And then they also set up the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, which measured uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure and heart rate every 20 minutes between the hours of 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. and then every 30 minutes during the night for 48 consecutive hours. They also collected at those visits uh, morning uh, urine and, and blood samples. The participants were asked to keep a diary to record their time of going to sleep and waking so that they could estimate the correct means um, for those different, different periods. The primary outcome was cardiovascular disease defined as um, myocardial infarction, coronary va- revascularization, heart failure, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, and CBD death. They were also interested in these 48-hour ambulatory b- blood pressure means that were calculated during all of the, the readings obtained on the participant. And then another outcome was the dipping. So they considered someone a nighttime dipper if they <laughs> had, if the difference between their awake and asleep ambulatory blood pressure mean divided by the awake mean uh, was at least 10%. Mm. Okay. So one interesting aspect of this analysis is it is a large randomized mm-hmm. trial. And the authors point out that there's very little imbalance of baseline characteristics Mm -hmm. in their table one, yet they used a stepwise selection procedure to identify potential confounding variables Mm -hmm. that were then controlled for in their Cox models. So those variables- My my, my blood pressure is going up as you say that. I can tell. You're unhappy with this. Yes. Very. Yeah. So those variables that they controlled for because of the stepwise selection procedure were age, sex, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, smoking, HDL cholesterol, previous CBD events, a sleep systolic blood pressure mean, and sleep time relative systolic decline. All of the individuals were followed up through their first confirmed CBD event or the last review of clinical records. So at the conclusion of the trial, after a median follow-up of 6.3 years, so they did make their, their target and then some, they found that the number of prescribed medications was slightly lower in the bedtime regimen group than in the waking group. The bedtime regimen group also had lower creatinine and LDL cholesterol and higher HDL cholesterol and estimated glomerular filtration rate, so a measure of kidney function, than the waking group. They found that the sleeping but not waking blood pressure, both systolic and diastolic, were lower in the nighttime in ingestion group than in the, the taking in the morning group. And 3,246 patients had a registered outcome event of which 1,752 were the CBD outcome, so a large number of outcomes. The hazard ratio for a primary CBD event adjusted for those factors I mentioned earlier uh, was 0.55, comparing nighttime to morning ingestion of, of the antihypertensives. The hazard ratio for cardiovascular disease death was uh, 0.44. There was no real evidence of effect modification. They looked at a variety of different potential effect modifiers, except that they found that the benefit tended to be somewhat larger for individuals who 
were previously untreated and had no history of cardiovascular disease. And the two groups seem to have similar proportions of both adverse events and non-compliance. So they conclude that taking at least one of your hypertensive drugs at bedtime seems to be both beneficial and safe. Yeah. Chris, what what is your... Take on the study. I believe you were the one who found this study and said we should look at it. Yeah, it's intriguing. It's such um, you know, if this is if this is true, then we have a a perfect example of uh, a strategy that can take an existing set of you know interventions in terms of controlling blood pressure, and with no change in cost, make them work better. I mean, it, there, you know, this is like there's a no downside to this, and if it if it's true, tremendous upside. Yep. So there's like yeah, it's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a hugely appealing intervention if 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 true, and so then the question for I guess for three of us is did did, did we buy it, and if. I guess since I'm talking, I'll go first. I I, I think I did uh, buy it. You know, this is an open label study, so there's some limitations there. It's not clear to me how easy it would have been to try to blind this. The assessors were blind, but mm-hmm. the patients certainly knew what drugs they were taking because they were taking them. I suppose you could have had people take a take you know placebo, you a, a, done that. a drug at night. It would have been the, drug the, at night, drug in the morning. One's a placebo, one's real. The challenge was though that the the, the medications that the patients taking were not were not were not prescribed by the study trial coordinators, but were what the patients were taking anyway, and then they were just randomized. Right, hard to do. And hard, so it would be hard to do. So you'd have to come up with like complicated multi-drug placebo regimens, which would be like a nightmare, I think, trials-wise. So that, you know, there's that caveat. But the the impact on cardiovascular disease outcomes was really impressive. And the thing that, that made me sort of scratch my head a little bit is that if you kind of run down the list of sort of mediating factors that you had references like you know the creatinine's a little lower which is good in in you know amongst the bedtime uh, hypertensive users and the LDL cholesterol is a little bit lower and the HDL cholesterol is a little bit higher amongst the bedtime people so all that like looks good but but the absolute values of these are very 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 subtly different and it were not for their very large sample size you would not have seen this being statistically different I'm sure and we don't want to get into the you know that using this, the p value as the device no, we don't. But the absolute values of the difference been like in systolic blood pressure of 143 versus 140 is subtle. And blood and for diastolic blood pressure, while again statistically significant, it was 82.4 versus 81.4. So almost spot on identical. Yep. So then you sort of wonder like why, given that the the biological shifts that we presume mediate blood pressure through cardiovascular disease basically did not differ very much. You start to wonder like, well, then exactly how, how did this work? That's, and that's where I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit stuck. I will say before I turn it over to the review to, to chew on that is, is that in terms of the, the impact of the randomization, most of the medications that were taken that were selected by the doctors of these patients were the, were the same. And particularly the ACE, the, the angiotensin receptor blockers were 53.1% and 53.1% respectively. The ones that, Differed though, where calcium channel blockers were much more common in the bedtime people, and, and thiazide diuretics were much less common in the bedtime people. So, for example, for thiazides, it's 46.7, percent took a, a thiazide for their morning their their morning daily dose, and only 39.5 took it for the bedtime, and that totally makes sense because you don't want to be up all night peeing. Right. I was going to ask about that's that. Why yeah. that. When you're taking multiple treatments, how did they decide which one was going to be the bedtime one? And I imagine 
the right. side effects right. would so, be one. Yeah. Because the doctors would change. The patients would, would almost certainly complain that taking their diuretic before they go to bed means right. they're not going to get any sleep because they're going to be peeing all night. You know, so they switched to calcium channel blockers to to do that instead. That 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 would be my interpretation here. Yep. So what do you think? Like, how did we get from A to C? I don't and know the answer B to that question. Was kind of subtle. So so my prior on this, and I tried to imagine what my prior would be. Of course, because the minute you know that it was a published paper, you know it probably found something. You don't know for sure, but all the hype in the news made me think, okay, it's got to be. But I thought to myself, okay, my prior on this is A. This isn't going to work. Why would this work? That's largely showing off my own ignorance of the particular subject matter, but why would this work? And B, my assumption is this is an observational study because who would do a randomized trial of this? Well, again, I'm showing off my own ignorance here more than anything, but I I, I didn't have any particular reason to believe it. And then I saw the results and I, I'm... I'm really scratching my head because a 50 if we could get a 50% reduction in in cardiovascular disease, right? With, yeah, and with, even more so anything, in death. For anything. Right. Yeah. Right? Regardless of what it was, we would say that is that's a home run right there. But we're not comparing people who got no treatment to antihypertensive treatment. We're comparing people who both got antihypertensive treatment at different times of the day. And, you know, again, I can believe that there are subtle things that go on in terms of absorption and, and circadian rhythm and all that, but enough to get us a 50% reduction. And then you look at the 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 numbers you pointed to, Chris, was was I was looking at the, the changes in blood pressure. There's, there's very little <laughs> change in blood pressure between these two groups. <laughs> so what explains this other than the lack of blinding leading to differences in both potentially behavior, but also in terms of differences in what medications they were taking and potential ancillary effects of those drugs? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to theorize, though, a little bit. And um, for all our readers, I'm an infectious disease specialist. <laughs> Not... A cardiologist. So with that big caveat, though, my initial bias is that our model of how hypertension leads to cardiovascular disease or mortality is, is, uh, is far too simplistic and that this is a complicated molecular, biological, genetic, physiological phenomenon and that it is, it is just like it is silly to just say high BP equals death uh, at some rate, at some fixed rate, that there are other things going on. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you a sort of an example of, of where I think these these models can be oversimplified and can mislead us. So congestive heart failure is treated with ACE inhibitors, okay? And ACE inhibitors reduce the afterload stress on the heart. And when I was an intern and a resident, all of our cardiologists said that this is why it's good for congestive heart failure is because it reduces afterload. Well, I pointed out at the time that so do beta blockers and so do calcium channel blockers and, and so do nitrates and so do a whole bunch of other drugs that don't reduce congestive heart failure mortality. They are all afterload reducers, but the only ones that seemed to help at that time were ACE inhibitors and now ARB drugs, angiotensin receptor blockers also are good for congestive heart failure. So it felt to me even then that the model was was like way too simplistic and something else was going on. And one thing I knew, and this has turned out to be increasingly true, is that angiotensin, this thing that is being blocked by these drugs is a growth factor, you know, drives all sorts of cellular processes. And so perhaps, you know, 
what we're seeing is that we're, we're looking for these mediating variables, but we're looking at a list of variables that are like 20 years old and have sort of like started to become less and less persuasive in terms of do they really matter in explaining the link between blood pressure and outcome? Um, when in fact, perhaps what we should be looking for is very subtle markers about, you know, angiotensin levels or what are the, what are the, the, the downstream effects of angiotensin on growth of cardiac myocytes or endothelial cells or things like that, or on wall stress. I mean, there's, there are maybe better markers. And so perhaps the reason we're seeing this benefit is because the list of explanatory mediating variables is kind of out of date and is not caught up with what I would say is the contemporary understanding of the molecular biology of cardiovascular disease. So that's where I think I, I sort of like salvage my basic belief that I, I think that this probably uh, really worked. And, and that makes sense to me, but enough that you're going to get a 50% reduction? <sighs> yeah. So then you have to hypothesize, as the authors do, that there's something unique about the physiology at night that differs from the day. And of course, we know that's true, right? Because like, you know, the basic job of the heart and and the the musculature in the vascular system is to prevent you from falling flat on your tushy when you stand up. Right, because okay. the blood as, as you go from you know, lying down to standing up, the blood pressure in your brain drops, and down you will go, pow on the ground, unless your heart speeds up and your blood vessels constrict. Mm -hmm. And so, the fact of being uh, you know standing up and walking around all day requires your 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 cardiovascular physiology to behave in a totally different way than when you're lying flat on your bed. Mm -hmm. Right, so it, it must, and and so. You know, a lot of those mediating pathways in terms of renin and angiotensin and aldosterone are different while you're asleep. And so maybe actually, you know, attacking those mechanisms at night totally makes sense okay. because that's when aldosterone levels and angiotensin levels tend to spike. And so giving an ARB in the middle of the night would work. And what would make me more persuaded by this is if they had done a subgroup analysis that looked at different antihypertensives, like those who are targeting the renin angiotensin system versus like ACE inhibitors and ARBs versus those that, that do not like calcium channel blockers and beta blockers and, mm -hmm. and thiazides. Yep. I would love to see those data. Yep. Jen, any, any additional thoughts? No, not really. I mean, I think I I think it is a compelling paper, and yeah. I think you know the authors tried to spin it that you know the fact that it wasn't blind, you know that it wasn't double blind in a way it was an advantage. You know, it's more like real world. You're not buying it. No, I don't. I don't like that as a as a a logic. I I, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. So I I mean overall I I, I couldn't uh, you know other than the strategy for selecting confounders. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done much differently. Sure. But the but the magnitude of the effects is is hard to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. Um I, and but at the same time like I love papers like this. I think, you know, a year ago we talked about this paper about you know, whether aspirin dose in trials was affected by lean body mass. And I think, you know, questions like this, it, it just always surprises me that we don't already know yeah, the answer. And this a is a little, little like that. Like the, we, we should know what time of day is best for taking. I, I was wondering about like, what about two doses a day? That was the first thing that occurred to me, like AM and PM. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups, mom. You know, I'm like, why not both? <laughs> Yeah, I think the only thing I would like to, I mean, I guess because of my skepticism around the the not understanding the mechanism is I, this is a case where I'd want to see another trial. I mean, mm -hmm. I know this is huge and, and 
all that, but I'd still, I'd like to see this replicated to know that this isn't just sort of, I'm not worried that it's chance finding so much as it's an overstatement of the size of the effect. And I'd want, you know, seeing another one would really make me feel more comfortable in cases where we don't know the mechanism. Okay, so can we, can we just put to rest the, this whole statistical significance? So I'm quoting here, in keeping with the trial design, there were no statistically significant differences at baseline between two balanced treatment time groups in the prevalence of, and then they list everything. But then there were, you know, these couple of things, and then they had their statistical model in which they adjust for those things. Okay. Which you shouldn't need to do if this is a randomized control well, trial. So but here's the thing. I know, this, I is, know. this is a, it's a large randomized trial. If you, with large numbers, you randomize things, then if you our hypothesis tester, then one in 20 things that you measure, you're going to be find a difference. Even if that one in 20 things is just a random coin flip, it's just a random number. The p-value tells you the probability that these differences are explained by chance, but you randomize them so you know it was explained by chance. So you're testing for something that you already know is true. Now, my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, my understanding is that what you do about this is it's not that, okay, so if something comes up as different, not significant, but different between arms, Mm -hmm. then you would want to adjust for it, but not because it came up as different by chance. You'd want to pre-specify what are the things that we think are predictive of the outcome and adjust for those things, whether or not they are statistically significant or differ between the groups, because they're reducing the overall variance in the outcome and you get more precise estimates. So it just drives me a little nuts. Can I ask the last question? That sounds very mathematical, by the way, what you're just saying. I just have one more thing to add to Okay, so there were a few, you know, sort of small spelling and grammar mistakes in this in this paper. Did you guys pick up on those? I did. So in the last paragraph of the introduction, for instance, the authors spell assess with one S at the end. Which, which is my nightmare. Which does not spell assess. But it reminded oh, me. Oh, it doesn't. It's right. no. Oh, my God. No, and no. I, 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 this, I fear I do this in my emails all the time. There are several words that I fear that I'm mistyping. <laughs> okay, well, so I have just a, a quick little are. story about it. So one of my first jobs out of college was I worked for an engineering consulting firm in the civic engineering division. A blast, let me tell you. Uh-huh, good times. Um, so what I used to do for fun, I was in the marketing department, and what I used to do for fun is review all of the former, all of the old marketing materials, which had miss spelled public with, oh, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. without that the L. So yeah, they're, right. you know, the Department of Pubic Works yep, and right. this new pubic S- project. School of, and school of Pubic Health. Exactly. Example, exactly. Yeah. And they were everywhere. Yeah. Mm. So, yes, yeah, but yep. assess with one S. Yep. Okay. What was, your, what was your point, Matt? Well, this, they referred to in this paper a take-home figure which is something I've never come What's across that? before. I do not know. <laughs> I take home, you get to take it home with you. Um, this article also had like the longest discussion I've ever read. It's unbelievably long. Okay. So unbelievable. Let's, let's, uh, Maybe they weren't required to reformat. Yeah, that's probably the issue. All right, so let's move on to hyping scientific research. So yes, the second we segment, should totally do this. We're going to talk about an article from the Irish Times by Anthony King entitled... Hyping research runs the risk of devaluing science. And this article is really is based on something we talked about as one of my uh, amazing and amusings, which was James Heather's uh, of Everything Hurts' fame's uh, Just Says in Mice Twitter handle. Yeah, I love that. 
It's fantastic. And, you know, it basically makes the point that we, you know, the media picks up on various studies and often these studies are my studies or they're small studies or whatever it is about these particular studies that you really can't draw strong conclusions and then draw you know the, strong in conclusions. Studies, for example, there's a very, very strong association between cheese consumption and, and death due to suffocation and having your head crushed yeah. in a mousetrap. Yeah, which does not translate to humans. Right. For example. <laughs> for example. Okay. And so I, th- there's no... Peanut butter, too. There is no need. I don't want to go through the article, nor do I want to go through the argument of the article because it isn't really making an argument. In mice. In mice. What I want (laughs) to know is, based on the headline, hyping research runs the risk of devaluing. I thought they were were talking about people who research hyping, whatever Mm -hmm, that is. mm -hmm. Hyping, vaping, hyping. Is there a lot of money in hyping research? Okay, uh, there may be. Well, actually, that is that is actually kind of to extent my point. There is money in hyping research, which I think is is the problem. Is that there is money to be made, or, or you are more likely to get clicks for a headline that says, you know, eating cheese will prevent you from having your head trapped in a vice, whatever it is, compared to the headline that says eating cheese may or may not do something scientists say. So the question is, though. And we talked about at nauseum the idea that we are partly to blame for this because we don't do enough to ensure that our press releases are accurately reflecting the state of the research. But my question is how given – given the incentives don't align here, given that the incentives for us are to publish high impact, high, you know, exciting research, given that the the, the media's – incentives are to publish things that are exciting and new, how much can we actually get good, solid information on all the limitations of our study into the headline, which is what people are going to read? What I mean, mm. what do we do about this problem mm. if most people are only going to read the headline? Hmm. 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 Long, I, I don't know. awkward pause demonstrating um, no answers I mean, to could this we question be less hypey in our papers headlines is, um, that, that, I mean, is that some I of the think, origins i here? think we do a pretty good job of making them pretty boring, boring actually as possible. yeah i don't we, think we do a lot of that right in fact journals will often make you have a boring <laughs> headline title they won't they won't let you kind of be snarky or funny well they only be snarky or funny they often won't even let you put a result in there it has to be a right. question the, the headline the the title of the article must be a right. research question not an answer does banana consumption reduce cancer risk yeah no it does not do <laughs> no. we know that i'm gonna go out on a limb and say it does not <laughs> okay so am i do i take you both to be on record as saying there is nothing we can do about this problem let's call it a day uh so, so i i <laughs> I just have to point out one thing about okay. this article, yeah. and that's that it's it's all based on the altmetric score, right? Like, so he does this little analysis looking at the altmetric 100. So the top 100 papers in a given year scored by altmetric. And altmetric uses what to score them? So, so that's what I wanted to bring up is that you, from what I understand, you 
An article gets more points if it's been covered in a major news outlet of some kind, but you also get points for someone posting a link or mentioning it on Facebook or Twitter. So it's this isn't just about the media and their promotion of, you know, scientific articles which might be punchy or else as he points out here, you know, just an issue that, you know, the public would like to debate forever for not necessarily any good reason. It's also just what people think is interesting to tweet about. So in that way, I don't know that it is a problem that can be fixed because people are just going to want to chat about fun, interesting science, not necessarily the best science, but, but it's not, I don't know. I don't know if it is a problem that can be remedied. I agree with you. I think we have a I think we have a problem of we have talked about it many times that that we are part of the problem and that the media is part of the problem, but it does seem to me that we as consumers of Absolutely. this and I put myself in that category whenever I'm reading medical research uh, in the headlines that is not about anything I know about, I'm just as, you know, excited to read the that that, you know, eating cookies is good for me as anyone. So I'm not going to look at the headline that says eating, you know, eating, scientists have no idea whether cookies are good for you or, you know, new study says cookies might be good for you, but we really don't know. But confounding I, and reverse causation is yeah. a high probability. Right. And but the it, results should not be trusted. Not going to read, not going to read those. I'm not going to click on those. And I'm certainly not going to remember that a week later. Right. You know, something we about us wants yet that. another ambiguous association. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's not going to that's it's not just that that's not going to make it in headlines it's that I don't want to read that. Yeah. But doesn't it kind of get to the the, the more but basic why? question of like why, why do I want to read that? Why do we want science findings to, you know, systematically be spun to the public? I mean, what what is the what what is the purpose? What are we trying to convey? Why do so? Why does the five o'clock news have a story about a medical study? Right. I mean, there are, there are some cases where it's clear why. You know, people who are not vaccinating are getting measles. Please vaccinate. That that seems to be like a very relevant thing to tell the public and actionable mm-hmm. because you're like, oh, geez, I don't want my kid to get measles. I'm going to get my kid vaccinated. I mean, that that's that seems to be unambiguous. But then then you go into the 99 percent of the rest of the stuff where it is like of relevance to maybe, you know, if we're talking about real minutia, we're talking about it's relevant to five other people in the world who study the same thing mm-hmm. and study it in mice also. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a much larger group of, of projects where it's, you know, the, the relevance is, is kind of defined and limited to its appeal to policymakers who are, or other scientists who are trying to synthesize a, can, you know, a comprehensive view of this phenomenon. But, you know, all of that is lost on the lay public too. So what are we, where, what are we aiming for? What do we want to do by hyping research at all? Yep systematically as opposed to only when like there's something clearly true and actionable. Yeah, and I I mean I think this is this maybe the maybe we just put too much out there into the into the press. I mean you can't stop them, right? We can't well, tell people you can't report on this. Right. But it it just seems to me that that maybe we would all be better off if there was less reporting on medical research in the news. Yes. Yes. I don't know that we'd be worse off. Yeah, probably right. <laughs> But of course, our incentives are misaligned because They're completely our, our, misaligned. Absolutely. our chairs and deans want us to do this. Yeah, no, and and 
the incentives for the media are to make money and the incentives for the consumer is to feel better about something that, that they have some control over their choices that they make around their behavior. So the incentives are all misaligned or, or, or not misaligned, but there, there is, there's always this undercurrent of pressure against good science and cautious interpretation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shall we move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing and as we said, the amazing and amusing no longer needs an intro. So, Jen, you want to go first this time? Sure. So, I found a study that had been covered in The Guardian just I don't know, in mid-November, November 18th. So, what is slipperier than Teflon? I feel like Nick reads The Guardian, maybe, so he might have seen this. Slipperier than Teflon and could help to reduce the more than 141 billion liters of fresh water that are used on one particular activity each day. Teflon coated with olive oil. Wait, slipperier than Teflon. Uh-huh. The, 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 the bathroom floor. <laughs> Sorry. You know, what did you say? Well, you're you're, you're kind of covered with olive oil. Or Pam. The, the, the <laughs> I think I had to look it up, actually. Slipperier is an actual word. I mean, I thought three syllables or more, you did more. More slippery? Slipperier? Slipperier is is a word. More slippery? Um, I'm wearing my slippery right now. Okay, I'm just going to, you guys are clearly not going to get it. So I'm going to tell you. This is a a spray-on coating that is sprayed on the inside of toilets. Oh, to oh. reduce skid marks buildup of feces oh. and could actually it requires much less water for flushing and so they I mean I'm actually kind of amazed by this figure so every day 141 billion liters of fresh water are used to flush toilets that is six times more than the daily water consumption of all of Africa. Wow. Good Lord. And they're, yeah. they're flushing it again and again and again and again. To well, if like you don't, cleanse. yeah. Yeah. If wow. You, yeah. Wow. So this researcher at Penn State University, Taxing Wong, was contacted by um, some folks at another university, maybe it's in the UK, Cranfield, I'm not sure. They were looking to design a toilet that could be used in the developing world. And he is an expert on slippery coatings. And so he was their guy. So in terms of the technology of this, it involves a base layer that binds to the toilet and has protruding nano hairs They're a a billion times thinner than human hair. And then on top of that, they add this fine coating of silicone oil, which is held in place by these little nano hairs. Totally makes sense. Takes less (laughs) than five minutes to apply. That's it. And it apparently lasts for a pretty long time. So they said that it could, it was stable enough to withstand 500 flushes, but it could need replenishing after 50 urination cycles. Oh. So, but the most fascinating but part the of this- But the point is that you can use less water? 
Exactly. Yeah. You oh, don't need okay. to keep flushing, or you, you're even the regular flush could involve less water because wow. yeah. yeah, yeah. This is super practical, actually. But yeah. super. But the way the most amazing thing about this, and there is no way I'm going to be able to get through this without a fit of laughter. But um, is how they tested. The, I mean, this is a real research study, and mm-hmm. I hope I'm elevating the altmetric of this paper, of mm-hmm. this very important paper. Okay, so their their study of this of the performance of this this coding involved two phases. <laughs> <laughs> the first phase, they this is a quote from the article. For the first phase, they turned to a South African recipe for synthetic feces and Say knocked what? up a batch of different consistencies. Wow, that's really innovative. That's a thing? I had no idea. And I don't, like, what is that? Like, and why is it a South African? I have so many questions. Good question. So many questions. They dropped the samples from a height of 40 centimeters onto test plates angled at 45 degrees. <laughs> Chris is measuring that out. And then they used a fluorescent dye mixed into the material to measure how much water it took to dislodge uh-huh. the fake feces and remove any visible marks. The coated surface took 90% less water to clean than, wow. than glass sheets. Yeah. That's actually pretty and then, awesome. And after that, they... Phase two? Yes, you can imagine what they did in phase two. Phase two Field is Field studies. Not, not. Real human feces sourced from three anonymous donors. Uh-huh. This is how we... Yep. The yep, they study. tested against toilet ceramic, Teflon, silicone, or this particular coating. And anyway, very effective. This paper was published in Nature Sustainability. Very Um, natural. Yeah. And the only concern is one person brings up is, you know, what happens when this coating is flushed into the environment? Is it poisonous? So that we don't know yet. Silicon. Yeah. um, Wow. Yeah. Wow. That That is really cool. Chris, what do you got? Uh, nothing nearly as cool as that. <laughs> but it, but an, an interesting paper about human nature published in Nature, I think. No, Science. Sorry, Science Advances. Um, it's The title, uh, title of the paper is called Kids These Days, Why the Youth of Today Seem Lacking by John Protzko and Jonathan Schooler. And um, they start with this great quote, which was from... Thomas Barnes, the minister of St. Margaret's Church in New Fish Street in London in 1624. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to do the accent well enough. Don't do but it. But he says, this is 1624, <laughs> quote, the youth were never more saucy. Yeah. The ancient are scorned, the honorable are condemned, and the magistrate is not dreaded. Kids today. <laughs> Kids today. Boy. So apparently his point was that like we've been scorning the youth of today oh, for so a true. really, really, really long time. No, this is and everybody thinks that the youth of today do not do not live up every to generation. how we was when we was youth. <laughs> every generation thinks this. <laughs> every generation. And so they decide to explore this systematically. That's to cool. sort of try to understand this. And and so they did a series of kind of clever experiments where they um, they surveyed uh, individuals, I think online, asking them about their attitudes about the youth of today. Today on various dimensions, controlling for characteristics of the respondents. Okay, and so they did these three experiments. They actually did five, but I'm going to talk about the first three. The first study uh, asked the question: Do kids respect their elders as we did back in the good old days? And so to look at this, they surveyed all these individuals about whether they thought the youth of today respect their elders appropriately, and then they also asked them to rate themselves in different ways on a scale of authoritarianism. And mm. so the general result was that across the board, perceptions are that the youth of today do not respect the elderly. No, they do not. 
which so and, and we don't know if this is true or not true, just that it is perceived to be true. But what was clear is that the 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 the, the tendency to believe that the youth of the today do not respect the elderly is strongly correlated with their endorse the the respondents endorsement of authoritarianism oh. so like so like someone who's very heavy-handed and believes like you know you know certain presidents should have an absolute dictatorial right to do whatever they want for example not talking about our country necessarily but you know whatever whatever might uh, tend to be particularly likely to endorse this attitude that the youth today are not respectful the second question they asked is are kids less intelligent compared with us <laughs> <laughs> so and this was an interesting one because there have been longitudinal studies that show categorically that the the average intelligence as measured you know imperfectly through intelligence tests is definitely rising in the United States mm-hmm. so so like this theory, but it's that like it, the Will Rogers thing, right? Exactly. Right. It's not. It's what, wait, the Will Rogers thing. Explain. I'm going to get it wrong on the spot, but basically, when the Okies moved to California, the IQ of both places went up. Isn't that right? <laughs> is, 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 I, that <laughs> I love that. Is that from like the Grapes of Wrath or something? Uh, no, this is this is the definition of the Will Rogers phenomenon, right? Oh, I, yeah. see, I see what you mean. You're, if the two so, distributions were completely separated and the bottom of one exactly. went to the top of the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. right. Wow. That's, that's so cool. pretty cool. Well, anyway, so our kids' intelligence is, a, is like background. Yes, they're definitely more intelligent, but the perception is that they are less intelligent, not that they are more, they are, they are yes. Anyway, you get the point. So here, <laughs> uh, in general, most people didn't really believe this was so, which was somewhat charitable. With the exception is that the, 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 in, the self-reported increased intelligence of the respondent strongly predicted belief that the youth of today are stupider. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you're like, yep. Yeah, you know, and study number three is, is another good one. Do kids today enjoy reading less than we did when we were kids? And they looked at the authoritarianism of this, and they also did this thing called the author recognition test, which just is a, a, a test to say, like, have you heard of T.S. Eliot? Have you heard of Shakespeare? Have you heard of people who wrote books, not whether they have objectively read them, yeah, but, but they've heard, heard of them. them. So it's sort of like a proxy for like literary consumption, but it's, it's a squishy one. We will stipulate. So again, the perception is that kids definitely do read less and that they enjoy reading less. But this is also predicated on the literacy of the respondents. So, so the people who rate themselves as highly literate are the most likely to consider kids to be illiterate mm-hmm. in terms of the consumption of the great works. And so their, their basic conclusion was, which is not like our kids, in fact, you know, less respectful, less, less, less intelligent and reading less because we don't have any indices of these except for the intelligence, which is definitely going up, is that most of this behavior behavior about the kids, the beliefs of, about the kids of the day is based on yourself projected Mm. forward rather than actually, uh, any difference in the kids of today versus any time going back to at least the 1620s. That's, that's, that sounds about right to me. Okay. All right. So mine, uh, I went in a totally different direction than I normally go. I normally go amusing. I went amazing to me. And this was just a a simple idea that I thought was kind of cool that, you and our listeners probably have known about for a long time, but I didn't, and therefore it struck me. So um, last summer we read the book, uh, the Book of Why. Did you? Were you part of the Book of Why book club? I was not. No. The really? Book of Why is a book by Judea Pearl. It's a it's a, a epidemiology type book, but it's a it's about more than epidemiology. Really, it's about causation and how we understand causation. But just as an aside, in one part of the book, he happens to in making a larger point, talk about error-correcting code 
codes. Do you know about error correcting codes? So the basic idea is that when you, so when you think about the original cell phones, so when you originally decide that you're going to build a cell phone, you have to take uh, sound and you have to turn it into digital information. Then you have to turn that, send that digital information over the airwaves to from one spot to another. And it's very easy for that information to get lost along the way or, or pieces of it to just kind of get broken up or the same idea would would be if you translated a music CD uh, music into a CD you've you've got all that information stored in in ones and zeros on the CD but if there's any kind of scratch on the CD it's very hard for the the CD player to figure out what it's supposed to to play so the idea of error coding in its most simple form was instead of sending a number of zeros and ones what we'll do is we'll send, every time there's a zero, we'll send zero, zero, zero. And every time there's a one, we'll send one, one, one. Mm. And that way, if any of them gets lost along the way, if I get a zero, one, zero, well, that's probably zero, zero, zero. And if there's a one, zero, one, that's probably one, one, one. And so we can guess right. what the information looks like. And you can then take a bad signal and turn it back into the information that you want. But the problem with that is then you're you're tripling the amount of information that you have to send that becomes intensive. And so they then, and I won't go into this, but they, they developed all of these, these mathematical procedures for figuring out what the minimal amount of information you could send is that would send up like additional pieces of information that mathematically would relate to the pieces on either end such that, again, you could always figure out in a packet of information whether or not it was likely to have been, there's some lost information that you could then predict what it was and get back to where you started, which I just thought was a, you know, clever people come up with clever solutions to problems that are affecting our everyday lives that we don't even realize. And I just mm. agreed. I, I had no awesome. idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it strikes me that Hamming there's a, codes, there's a biological analog of what you're describing, yes. which is, yes. which is DNA. Yeah. Right. Like Explain that. We, we, cause amino acids are coded in triplets. Yeah. As opposed to quartet, you know, quartets, 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 or quintuplets. But, but so, so you know, one would assume it could also be in pairs, but but it's not in pairs. Every amino acid is coded for by three base pairs. So doesn't that sort of imply that evolution has selected three as being the the most efficient number for transmitting the code without error? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Because four just, would you... be more accurate. Yeah. But we don't use four because it eats up biological bandwidth. Yeah. So it's three, and two would like make mistakes all the time. So three seems to be the magic number. Three is that's, the magic number. That's what you need. Three is huh. the magic number. You remember wow. three? Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @prof_matt_fox, or Chris at id.gill, or Those crop circles, Jen at, at Jennifer R. Ryder. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Don't forget the L. I uh, won't forget the L. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>